my parents would be upset to hear this if they were in the room tonight. But I watched a ton of television as a kid. Like, not just a little television, I mean, a lot of TV. Uh, as a really little kid, I would squeeze in an hour of TV before going to kindergarten or first grade. I remember watching shows like G.I. Joe, Captain Planet, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Thundercats. After school, it was at least two hours uh, of Disney cartoons. Gummy Bears, DuckTales, Rescue Rangers, and Tailspin, in that order. I, I'm not going to do it tonight, but I, I can almost guarantee that I can sing for you the theme song to every single one of those shows. Uh, I've got two younger sisters, by the way. I, you may or may not know this. My, um, I've got a sister who's a, like a year and a half younger than me. Her name's Taya. I've got another sister who's like nine years younger. Her name's Marika. But Taya and I, we, we were the ones who really watched a lot of these shows together. As we got older... We traded in the cartoons for shows like Full House, Save by the Bell, Fresh Prince, Hey Dude. But then come high school, it was pretty much MTV nonstop. My sister and I loved MTV. And I need to put this in some context. It's the mid-1990s, which means there was no YouTube. The internet was just becoming a thing. So if you wanted to see what was really cool, what was really hot and fresh, like good music, awesome videos, you were watching MTV. Like, there really just isn't anything culturally like MTV uh, was back then, you know, when they were still showing music videos. It was awesome. I'm sorry you all are missing out. I still remember uh, certain music videos uh, from that time. Um, Missy Elliott, Busta Rhymes, Radiohead, Chemical Brothers, Red Hot Chili Peppers. And uh, today, I got totally distracted and actually started watching some of them. And I texted Taya, I'm like, I'm, I'm like kind of in this like rabbit hole of music videos on YouTube. I was like, do you remember like what the best videos were from like high school? And she's like, oh my gosh, yes. And she texted me all of the ones that I had like started to create a playlist. I was like, it was a good bonding moment with Taya. That was today. Anyway, I'm gonna, if you're interested, I'll send this playlist to you. And you can totally think I'm weird. Um, <laughs> most of these videos uh, that are in this playlist are there because they were awesome. And I remember them because they were awesome. But there is one that I'll drop in this playlist that is memorable, not because it was awesome, but because I remember it being so awful. And it was the Dave Matthews Band, uh, Too Much, the music video for Too Much. The song is okay. I mean, it's classic Dave Matthews Band. I actually liked Dave Matthews Band in high school and in college. Um, I was talking to SJ about it. She did it. Oh, well. <laughs> but again, to put this in context, it's 1996. I'm a freshman in high school. Dave Matthews Band album Crash just came out, and everybody is listening to it, like even our parents. It's kind of embarrassing, but even they are like going to shows. But as soon as I saw the video for Too Much, I never wanted to listen to the song again. And I never wanted to see the video again. It sort of like had the complete opposite effect of what probably the director was going for. I don't know if you know the song, the, the, the lyrics essentially go, I eat too much, I drink too much, I want too much, and then too much, right? But in the video, what you see is a bunch of like pale white guys in black suits and they're guzzling what looks like gasoline. They're sitting at this long, 
dinner table and they're just shoving food in their mouth and they've got all this like juice and meat just sort of dribbling down their chin and with the lyrics it really is too much like I don't like it it's grotesque it's ugly to see and after seeing the video I never wanted to sing the song like I know I wanted no association with this with these lyrics and with this imagery And what I think we have here in Revelation 17, 18, and 19 is similar. We are given a visual of an ugly, grotesque culture of consumption. And if you're like, it's a gross image, I think that's the point. It's, it's, it's portrayed to us in such a way that we don't want to have any association with it either. This culture of consumption is depicted for us as a prostitute straddling a beast, which if you were here a few weeks ago, you would recognize as the nation state, as nationalism. And she's straddling this beast, her legs are open, and in her hand is a cup, it's a goblet full of obscenity and vulgarity. I picture it full of semen and blood. And you can see her almost like laughing and splashing this cup everywhere. And on everyone, people all around her just drinking it up. She's dressed in rich clothing, she's covered in jewels, and John himself can't stop staring at her. Almost like horrified, but also kind of mesmerized. In the wilderness, which is to say in this life of faith, between the D-Day of Jesus' coming and the V-E day that's going to be the new heavens and new earth, we encounter four enemies that want to destroy us. The devil, the nation-state and its worship, which we call nationalism, false religion, and finally this, what I'm calling a culture of consumption. A culture of consumption is what this symbolic vision represents. A culture, a mindset, kind of a way of life that says everything, and I mean everything, people, the planet, sort of products, all of it exists for our consumption and use, right? Everything, everyone exists for our selfish pleasure. Now, it's not just consuming people, which we might call lust, and it's not just consuming food or drink or Netflix, right? Like binging those things, right? We might call that gluttony. And it's not just consuming resources. Like we might call that greed. It's all of these sort of vices sort of wrapped up into one thing. This is the final enemy that seeks to take your life in the wilderness. It's a culture of consumption. Where does this culture come from? Like, where does it originate? I think you can think of this culture of consumption as really one, like a river with two streams flowing into it. The first stream that flows into this river is secularism. Secularism is the belief that the only thing that is real and true is the here and now. The only thing that matters right, is the here and now. And the only thing that is real are things that you can see and touch and taste. That's it. Right? There's nothing transcendent. 
We live in a strictly physical, material universe, says the secularist. And what this means is that you are nothing but a body, and there's nothing beyond the grave. So in the words of another Dave Matthews band song, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. A secular outlook almost cannot help but breed selfishness. If you only live once, and if there's nothing beyond the grave, well then do whatever makes you feel good. The only meaning in your life is to find and experience as much pleasure as possible, because that's all there is to it. Do what makes you feel good. Get as much of it as you can, and get it all as quickly as you can. These streams of secularism and selfishness, they converge on the self and on your pleasure and on your immediate gratification. And what you get is a culture of consumption. Now, if you look at your passage, you see that this culture of consumption rides on the back of the beast. It benefits from slavery and sweatshops and state-sanctioned exploitation of people and the planet. Right? These are things that make it possible for us to consume as many things as we can and as cheaply as we can. But this culture of consumption profits the state too, right? in the form of kickbacks and tax dollars and the like. Right? A culture of consumption puts money in the coffers and finances sort of the whole enterprise. You all might be too young to remember this. But after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, President Bush didn't call for us to sacrifice much. He called for us to go shopping. He said, go to the malls and spend money. He said, I quote, get down to Disney World in Florida. Take your families, enjoy life. This is your patriotic duty. Consume, spend, shop, enjoy yourselves. Now, I'm not here making an argument against capitalism. I'm not here to pick on any politician. And I'm not here to make an argument for any sort of economic system. I'm simply showing you what Jesus showed John. It's a warning. That what happens when you take God out of the picture and you put yourself at the center, what you get is a culture of consumption where everything exists for your use, pleasure, and instant gratification. This culture will destroy you, it will destroy other people, and it will destroy the planet. And the evidence for this is everywhere. You see it in our sex-saturated marketing and pornography coming out of our ears. You see it in health statistics where over, or nearly 50% of Americans are obese. Whereas in other parts of the world, people are starving to death. It, it is this culture that is fueling our climate crisis. And it's why millions of Americans are drowning in credit card debt. Well, we'll get to a solution in a minute here. But before we do, I want to pull this curtain back just a little bit more. Because I really do want you to see not just where this comes from, but what it leads to. And this is is not to shame you in any way, but to really shame it, (laughs) right? Think back to that Dave Matthews band, right, Too Much Video. Like, I think if you really see this, you're like, I don't want to sing this song. I don't want to have association with this because it's ugly. 
And it is. A culture of consumption where God is not in the picture and you're very much at the center and everything exists, right, for your pleasure, for your use, to just consume and throw away. A culture like this, this is all that there is, is this life. So you had better get yours now. It is ultimately pitted in a race against death. A culture like this is constantly racing against time, which means that it's going to put a premium on youth and beauty, and it is going to hide anything that smells of death. Because death is the ultimate enemy. Because that's game over. Right? YOLO, bro, right? A secular, selfish culture of consumption, it leads to, inevitably, to photoshopped, highly pixelated, pornographic ideals. It leads to an obsession with body image and making idols out of diet and exercise and health and wellness. Those things aren't bad, but it elevates them so that they're actually godlike in your life. It leads to the explosion of plastic surgery and pharmaceuticals including pills that allow 80-year-olds to have sex like they were 20 again, because it's obsessed with youth. It also means, right, cordoning off the elderly in nursing homes and hospitals. Like, get them out of sight, get them out of mind. We don't want to be reminded that we're going to die. We hide our graveyards. We hide our elderly. We are obsessed with youth. Not only does it lead, a culture like this, like lead to an obsession on youth and everything that goes with it, it leads to dissatisfaction. A culture that says everything exists for your consumption and that the only things that are real are things that you can see, taste, and touch is going to leave you wholly unsatisfied. Why? Because bodily cravings never have anything but temporary satisfaction. No matter how lovely the pleasure we take in eating, for example, we will always get hungry again. The pleasure doesn't last. And this is why these desires tend to escalate. We need more and better than we have in hand, right, to fill us up. This is the the explanation for addiction, for binging, for hoarding, right? I'm reminded of what J.D. Rockefeller said at the time. Uh, Well, what he said, at the time, he was the world's wealthiest man. His net worth was about $400 billion in today's dollars, which makes him two times richer than Jeff Bezos. So J.D. Rockefeller is asked a question by a reporter like, J.D., how much money is enough? And you know what his famous answer was, like what he retorted? Do any of you know? One more dollar. He is the world's richest man, $400 billion. How much is enough? I just need one more, one more dollar. That's what happens, right? When we look to things, right, to satisfy, it's just never enough. There's more. This culture leads not just to an emphasis on youth or leads you sort of dissatisfied. It leaves you cynical and lonely, What goes around comes around. If you steal, you expect other people to steal from you. 
If you lie, you expect everybody, you suspect everyone's lying to you. If you gossip, you assume everybody is talking about you behind your back. And if you use people like objects, you will assume that is exactly what they're doing to me too. They're just using me. And this leads to all kinds of cynicism and distrust. If you're in a culture that just sees other people around you as just means to an end or just things to be enjoyed for your, for your pleasure and satisfaction, you're going to feel that's exactly how they're treating me, which is going to make you cynical and distrusting. It means that you're going to be less likely to enter into relationships vulnerably and trustingly. And this sets up a vicious cycle of further and further cynicism and isolation and loneliness. And it has reached a level of a pandemic. Loneliness is an epidemic in the West. And this was before COVID. (laughs) This is true before COVID. In the UK, things were so bad that they actually appointed a minister of loneliness, which is a government agency, to deal with this problem. Loneliness kills people. Research has shown that it is worse for your health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And it's associated with greater risk for heart disease, dementia, depression, and anxiety. And loneliness is not the same thing as social isolation. Because you all know you could be in a crowded room full of people and still feel lonely. You could be in a room full of people and feel unknown and unloved. And this is what is afflicting so many people in the world and so many folks on this campus. If you pull back the curtain, you see this is what is going on. We are growing up in a culture of consumption where there's no room for God. You are just a body and you simply exist to consume. So eat your heart out. We discover that as we eat our heart out, there's no heart left. Ironically, this afflicts the wealthy the most. Studies have shown that adolescents reared in suburban homes with an average family income of 120000 or higher. So almost everyone in this room, okay? Adolescents who are reared in suburban homes, upper middle income, they report higher rates of depression, anxiety, and substance abuse than any other socioeconomic group of Americans today. You say, why is that? It's, this is the reason. Because they look at their life and they say, I have all of these things. I have all of this privilege. I have all of these experiences. I should be happy, but I'm not. I'm unsatisfied. I'm lonely. I'm lost. It comes from this culture, a culture of consumption. And there's one more thing I want to show you. This culture of consumption, it does all of these things, but finally it just dehumanizes you. It dehumanizes you. It, it does so by reducing your whole person to simply a body. It takes your soul completely out of the equation. And nowhere is this more prevalent than in our attitudes towards sex. Here I am again, back in high school, watching MTV. And this time it's the Bloodhound Gang singing, You and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Have you heard that song? It's terrible. <laughs> it's a bad music video. But that's the message. 
Right? You and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Y'all, in reality, sex is not just a physical act, but a spiritual one. In reality, it's not just two bodies coming into contact with with each other, but two souls. Sex is like spiritual glue. It joins souls together, which is why it is so painful if you or the other person has sex with somebody else. The only way for it not to hurt you is for you to drain sex of this sort of spiritual power and purpose, which is what our culture does. It says it's nothing, and it means nothing. But that is not true. When you have sex with someone, what you're saying is, I'm all in. And that sounds graphic, but it's true. I'm all in. I'm giving myself to you. All that I have is yours. I'm not holding anything back. But the problem is, unless you're married, unless you've made some public permanent promises, you're not really giving yourself away. On the contrary, you're really keeping yourself at bay. You're holding back. You're withholding yourself. Which is why when you're lying around, you're actually lying and you're being lied to. Love and language and, of course, new life is, is what is at stake here. But in our secularism and selfishness, right, in this culture of consumption, all of this gets stripped away and we lose more than our clothes. We start to lose our souls. I want you to hear what a woman named Rebecca DeYoung writes in her book, Glittering Vices. She says, when we strip sex of its spiritual and social meaning, she says, and I quote, we are left with a version of sex that's found in cosmopolitan magazines, which offers tips and techniques how to achieve the greatest orgasm of one's life and make things hotter in bed. Cosmo, Maxim, and the like have nothing to say about what sexual desire and intercourse look like in the context of love. To anyone who has experienced the beauty and warmth of married intercourse, the cosmos sex experience looks cold, clinical, and downright abhorrent. Lust wants it. Like, it wants sex. While proper eros desires a beloved person. No wonder it leaves one feeling used and empty. Y'all, do you realize this is where we are at? That the culture that I'm describing is is the sea that we are swimming in. It is the current that we are swimming in. This is where we are at. And now I want you to listen real close. Because Jesus loves you enough to meet you where you are at. He loves you enough to meet you where you are at. And he loves you enough not to leave you there. There is a voice that is calling for you. It is calling, come out of her and come to me. This call is the only thing that is going to free you from this culture's vices. You cannot fight this current on your own. You cannot fight this culture on your own or with your, the strength of your own willpower. You need what another theologian has called the expulsive power of a higher affection. The only way that you are going to leave the vice of this lover is if you find a better one. If you are wooed and captivated 
by a deeper love. And this is why what we have here is not a call to endurance. We don't have a call to wisdom or even simply a call to come out. But what we have here is a call to someone from someone. It is the call to you from the lover of your soul. And he is saying, come out of her and come to me. Come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. In Revelation 18, we hear the call to come out of her. And the call to come out of her, what it means is, uh, uh, is to, it's, it's, uh, to come out of a way of thinking or being or doing in the world. It's not a call to completely withdraw from the world or society. It's not to say you need to move into some monastery or some van down by the river or some like abandoned bus in the Alaskan wilderness. That's not what this means. The call to come out is simply a call to quit relating to others and quit relating to the world right, in this secular, selfish way. Be in it, but not of it. Right? Don't be seduced by it anymore. Don't buy the lie that you're just a body and that everything exists for your consumption and pleasure. Right? Don't conform yourself to that way of thinking and that way of life. Come out of that. There's another call. It's not just a call to come out. It's a call to come to. To come to something. To come to someone. It's a wedding invitation. Chapter 19, verse 9. It's a call to come. Come to the altar. Come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And you might be like, well, okay, that sounds kind of weird. What, what is that? Who's getting married? You're in for a surprise. It's you. You're being invited to your wedding. And Jesus is there with arms open wide. He's waiting for you. He is calling you to himself. He he wants to wed himself to you. You are the one that he wants. He is giving himself away to you. Everything that he has, he wants to give to you. All that he is, he wants to give to you. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. If you've never gotten this wedding invitation before, I'm giving it to you tonight. I'm like putting it in your hand. You are invited to this wedding. It's yours. I've gotten to perform a couple of weddings. Uh, Some even for some RUF and UVM alumni. It's one of the best sort of perks of being a campus minister. Like, I love getting to do it. One of the greatest moments uh, in a wedding ceremony is obviously when the doors open and the bride begins her, like, walk down the aisle. Right? All eyes are on her. But because of where I'm standing, right, sort of right there by the groom, I can see the groom in my peripheral vision. And sometimes I'll just turn and look at his face. And I get a real good close-up view of the smile on his face as he sees his bride come towards her and the tears that are welling up in his eyes. I see like the sheer joy and love and longing and gratitude that is really just captured there on his face. And I want you to make this connection. This is how Jesus sees you. This is how like the, the God of the universe sees you. 
as a groom beholding his bride. With the same intensity of joy and longing and affection and love. He loves you so much. So much that he is willing to give up everything to have you. Right, to give up his kingdom, his throne, so he can have you. He's willing to give up his life so he can have you. He's not holding anything back. He's all in. Right, he's all yours. This culture of consumption says that everything and everyone exists for your use and pleasure that you're nothing but a body and there's nothing beyond the grave. So get yours and get it while it's hot. Live this selfish, self-consumed life. Why not? Jesus says, come out of that. Come out of that. You could not be more wrong. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? What will it profit you to have everything and to lose your soul? Look, you don't have to make that bargain. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who are thirsty, and I will satisfy your souls. Come to me and hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. I will wed myself to you forever, he's saying. One of my favorite songs, we'll play it after Wednesday Night Fellowship tonight, is Your Mess is Mine. I love this song. It's a great wedding song. It's like this, this mess was yours, now your mess is mine. This is what happens on wedding days. Like we, we, we get each other's messes. And in the case of this, like, Every, Jesus inherits our mess and we get what he's got, which is everything. When you get Jesus, you get everything. Most significantly, you get what you want most of all. You get a lover of your soul. right? Someone who sees you, warts and all, and doesn't turn away in disgust. Someone who sees you not just at your best, but at your worst, and still says, I love you and I'm not going anywhere. Y'all, when you encounter a love like that, you do not let it go. And what you discover is that he's not letting you go either. This is what is on offer here. And this is what you're being invited into. It's a wedding feast. So come out of her and come to me, Jesus says. Come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Let's pray.